If Sarah Mickeljohn's life was a movie, she'd be played by some famous actor with a kind of mathematician vibe. Someone like Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit. No, wait, maybe not chess. Let's go with cryptography. Think Kara Knightley, circa Imitation Game. That's the movie in which she plays a codebreaker. And Sarah Mickeljohn, well, she's kind of one of those too. When I went to grad school, it was with doing cryptography in mind. You know, I enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles and logic puzzles and just making sense of things and putting things in order. She wasn't cracking German submarine code. As a grad student, she was focused on a much more modern mathematical curiosity, Bitcoin. Some say that since cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin burst on the scene more than a decade ago, it's given birth to a kind of golden age of cybercrime. Because it allowed cybercriminals to bypass the traditional banking system, they could avoid all the tracking and tracing and frozen accounts that come with it. The first time I heard about Bitcoin was, you know, people using it on Silk Road. She went into dark web markets where people could buy anything from weapons to drugs in a way that seemed anonymous as long as they paid for the transactions with Bitcoin. The thing was, Sarah was pretty sure it wasn't anonymous, and she was looking for a way to prove that. And, you know, I started collecting kind of lists of different thefts and other kind of criminal behavior. In the Hollywood version, Sarah would be sitting in front of a glowing computer screen, tagging, coding, de-encrypting. You know, it was just this, like, tangled web of hashes and, like, random-looking addresses and transactions, and I just wanted to make sense of it a little better. More tagging, coding, and tracing deep into the night. Let's add a rainstorm for dramatic effect. And then, just as lightning flashes across the room, inspiration would hit. This is how a movie would show the moment when Sarah Mickeljohn would look at one Bitcoin transaction and then follow it back to a specific market, and from there a specific wallet, and then perhaps to a group of people. And suddenly, these Bitcoin transactions weren't these dark, shadowy things. They were traceable. I kind of knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Bitcoin was not anonymous. Sarah found that the public ledger of all these transactions, the blockchain, wasn't so mysterious after all. It's completely transparent. You know, anyone who wants can just download it and, and look at every transaction that's happening. Look at every transaction as it was happening. And understanding that didn't just launch a series of takedowns and arrests in the dark web. It opened the door to a whole new billion-dollar industry built around tracking cryptocurrency. Sarah was an early force behind that, though the way it happened wasn't quite the bolt of lightning stuff of the movies. I'm certainly not going to claim that I had any kind of, you know, eureka moment where, you know, I sat up in bed in the middle of the night and said, aha, I, I got it, and then, you know, like, started coding. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, an origin story. We look at how a group of mathematicians and coders gave birth to a whole new way of fighting crime in cyberspace by tracking cryptocurrency transactions. And did you ever think that what you were doing was going to give rise to an entire industry? Uh, no. No, I did not. <laughs> Stay with us.
If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Uh, So I think in the beginning, you know, we all just were kind of like, whoa, Bitcoin, like what's anyone doing with it? You know, how's it being used? Sarah Micklejohn is a bit of a process geek. And there was something about the process of Bitcoin that didn't add up to her. And since she was a cryptographer and Bitcoin is all about code, the fit seemed natural. So when I think of cryptography, I think of like the Enigma machine. Yeah, the Enigma machine is is a great example. That's what historical cryptography, and that's achieving um, one specific thing, which is something called symmetric encryption. Symmetric encryption, which just means that one person wants to send a coded message to another person without anyone understanding it. Basically, if you and the person you're communicating with both have access to a shared key, then how can you send data between yourselves? And in particular, someone intercepting that data, for example, can't see what you're saying. The latest intercept. Ready? Yes. M. M. Y. Y. M. M. S. The Germans used something called the Enigma machine to transmit its coded messages. It's the greatest encryption device in history, and the Germans use it for all communications. The Enigma machine looked like a typewriter, but it allowed for billions of ways to encode a message which made the messages sent by it really hard to crack. Everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Let me try, and we'll know for sure. Mr. Turing, do you know That's Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing in The Imitation Game. And Turing and other researchers at Bletchley Park eventually designed a machine, an early kind of computer, really, that helped them break it. So that was kind of the, the use of cryptography for millennia. Today's cryptography is about using hardcore mathematics to represent information and make it really secure. And for something like Bitcoin to work, precisely because it isn't part of any traditional banking system, it needed some mechanism to keep track of transactions. It needed something to prove that this Bitcoin went from person A to person B. And to do that, Bitcoin's creator, someone or maybe a group of people who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto, created the blockchain. Think of it as a big digital book that keeps track of all the complicated hashes that represent Bitcoin transactions. And because there are no names attached, people made assumptions about it. There was an assumption that because there were no names in Bitcoin, there was no addresses, there was no number that was linked back to an individual where they had filed some paperwork, that it was really anonymous. And... um, That's not the same as being anonymous. This is Stefan Savage. He's a professor of computer science at University of California, San Diego. And he oversaw Sarah's Bitcoin work. 
Stefan said that Sarah wanted to devise a way to track a Bitcoin transaction from start to finish, and she landed on a simple method of doing just that, shopping. Sarah came up with the idea, and the, the idea was actually straightforward after she said it, was that, look, look, you have this anonymous identifier that corresponds to either a person or an exchange or, or a retailer, and it is anonymous so long as no one uses it. But as soon as the transaction touches the real world, the anonymity goes away. I have a random ID, and I buy something from you, and you ship it to me. Then the two ends of that transaction take on a human shape, or at least an identifiable shape. Stefan Savage had already seen how that worked, but in a different context. For the two previous years, we had been doing all of this work on underground pharmaceuticals, but not involving Bitcoin, just using credit cards. They bought $50,000 worth of counterfeit drugs and then tracked the flow of money back to the banks they came from. And when they traced it back, they found a handful of accounts that were in the middle of it. Sarah wanted to do the Bitcoin version of that. So she started shopping. And we gave her a bunch of money, two, $3,000 or something like that. But Bitcoin was um, cheap back then. Just so I understand the cadence of this, was she buying something like once a week and then watching it? I think in the beginning, you know, the way we normally did these things, you buy a few things just to make sure that they come, <laughs> that you're not just getting ripped off. And um, once that happened, then she started buying a lot. And, and there were crazy things she would buy. Like, I, I think the first thing she bought might have been like a Boston CD. We also bought a cartridge of Super Mario Brothers 3. Uh, I think we got, like, scones or something one time. She bought coffee mugs. Somewhere I have a coffee cup here that she bought. I don't know where that is. She'd sign up, go to a site, transfer the Bitcoin. They did not make this easy to do. This was not for the faint of heart to go and do these raw Bitcoin transactions. But no, she was ordering, you know, dozens of things a day, I think, at the peak. And everything she's buying... Like it's coming in boxes and you guys are watching her open them up and then sort of, what, catalog them and then put them in a closet? She would occasionally bring them into like as a show and tell in the group meetings, but she <laughs> just had this huge thing under her desk. Stefan still has a lot of the physical artifacts. I, you know, I'm terrible about cleaning up, but when she moved out of her office, she came by with all these boxes and I still have them. I mean, I can show you. Do you want to see some of them? I'd love to. All right, hang on. Let me... Um... Stefan kind of wanders away as we're talking and grabs a box in the back of his office. So, like, we have a Guy Fox mask, very on brand for the time. And still in the bag, I see. Oh, yeah. Well, what am I going to do with a Guy Fox mask? Uh, <laughs> here we have some, some earrings. Let's see. In this box, we have some organic Colombian coffee beans. I'm sure they're very good after, you know, 15 years. But these aren't just random purchases. Sarah was buying things that would allow her to track things in particular wallets. It was, I need to get a purchase from some wallet in this cluster that my algorithm has identified. Let me go and see things that are likely to get me there. And, and then, you know, she would make guesses because you don't really know. Well, educated guesses. Yeah, ed educated guesses. And so she made sure to get all of the big online payment platforms. And it turns out that a lot of the tracking she'd do, from her wallet to some other wallet, had her passing through the biggest Bitcoin exchange at the time, something called Mt. Gox. It was based in Japan, and as fate would have it, it would be central to the Bitcoin tracking that would happen next. 
they, they were the largest player by far. They had near monopoly presence in the blockchain at the time. And Melcox was just a bank using a different kind of funny money. When we come back, how a huge Bitcoin heist at Mt. Gox kick-started an industry. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. When the CEO of Mt. Gox announced in 2014 that the biggest cryptocurrency exchange on the planet was shuttering its operations, it rocked the crypto world. It wasn't just that people had lost their life savings or that some $500 million in Bitcoin went missing. The fall of Mt. Gox seemed like an existential threat to crypto itself. A leading exchange for Bitcoin has halted all transactions and has frozen customer accounts. This exchange is called Mt. Gox. And with the company's abrupt disappearance, so too went a huge amount of money in Bitcoins, as bankruptcy lawyers came in to make heads or tails of what had happened, they got a phone call they weren't expecting from a Danish crypto entrepreneur named Michael Groninger. People didn't really know why it went bankrupt initially. Uh, well, money were gone. That was clear. But no one really knew why. The sheer number of transactions on the Mt. Gox exchange gave people the impression that they'd never really get to the bottom of it. But Michael was more confident. And I think my assessment were that there's no chance that I wouldn't be able to figure out what happened. Michael understood precisely what Sarah did, because he'd read her paper. And I think the, the way I read Sarah's paper was very much like, oh, that's fun. They tried it out. That's great. Let's see how good it actually worked. And it, it worked pretty well. Now the question was whether it would scale, and scale on a level that could help him solve the Mt. Gox problem. Michael figured you could just compare Mt. Gox's internal ledger of transactions with the accounting on the blockchain to figure out what went wrong. And even if he couldn't figure out where all those stolen Bitcoin had gone to... I'll definitely be able to know a lot more. The worst thing that could happen is, like, the database were not really there. But then I would know that it was probably an inside job. It was completely corrupted. Michael figured he could do what Sarah did, but faster, by tagging, sorting, and de-encrypting, not in a piecemeal way, but with a powerful algorithm. That's the only thing that scales, and it's really hard to make things scales in the physical world. We got a lot of ideas early on about how you can automate that process, and, and you could get intelligence from other places there. So he flew to Japan to talk to the Mt. Gox bankruptcy lawyers with a proposal to do just that. And we enter the building, go up on, I don't know, like 19th floor or something, or even, even higher up. They go into this conference room. There are a couple of dozen bankruptcy lawyers there. So we sit on one side, you say hello to everyone, you hand over your business cards to everyone. It's like Everyone's bowing. And it is a bit overwhelming because there's a lot of people on the other side. And they have a lot of questions because they want to understand, like, what is your proposition? How do you want to help us? Is this something you can actually help us with? Their task is to fix the bankruptcy, right? And Michael starts to explain to this room of lawyers, not crypto bros, what he thinks might have happened. Basically, Sarah Micklejohn's Bitcoin shopping paper on steroids. And when he started combing through all the transactions that had gone in and out of Mt. Gox, he discovered something that people had missed. 
When someone hacked into Mt. Gox back in 2011, they didn't just steal some Bitcoin. They stole something much more valuable. Private keys. Stealing private keys is like stealing passwords. Which meant that whoever did that three years earlier had the passwords that allowed them to come and go as they pleased. And now they could basically take money out of the exchange all the time. This wasn't just speculation. Michael could see it right there on the blockchain. I could see the money had been stolen from Mangox not over one night, but over two years. So this slowly had been leaking out of the exchange, just like if you had a vault with a hole in the floor and you just keep throwing gold in there and assume it's still there. So it basically disappeared over a long time. An extraction so slow and so methodical, no one seemed to notice. So they basically steal money and say, like, there's a lot of money here on this address, let's take it all. And nothing happens. You do it again, nothing happens. And they realize, okay, maybe I should build something more structural around that. And then you see money being taken out constantly. So you've automated it. Yes, you automate it. So that was the first step. Michael could see that the Bitcoin was being siphoned out of the Mt. Gox exchange. Then he dug deeper because the blockchain kept track of more than just transactions. It had dates and times that allowed him to track every single theft. And then... Every time the Bitcoin was converted to cash, that had a date and timestamp too. And, well, these transactions seemed to happen during business hours in Eastern Europe. Or, more likely, he thought, during the workday in Russia. Which turned out to be prescient because about three years later, a Russian national named Alexander Vinnik was arrested in Greece and charged for, among other things, being the mastermind of the Mt. Gox heist. Michael Sleuthing helped build that case without a cop, without a subpoena, without a search warrant. All the information was in the public blockchain just waiting to be pieced together. So the blockchain did exactly what it was supposed to do. It did. It did. Yes. Wow. Michael, for his part, decided to turn all this into a business, and he called it Chainalysis. Fast Company called the company the $8 billion crypto unicorn that crypto loves to hate. And these days, Michael doesn't just identify shady players in the crypto world. He's working with financial institutions and governments to try to take cryptocurrency to the next level, to make it safer and more secure. Because he believes in it. In fact, he's one of those people who doesn't blame crypto for this golden age of cybercrime we find ourselves in. I see it completely opposite. I actually think we, the internet created a golden age of cybercriminality. And crypto enabled us to follow the money. He says crypto doesn't make it harder to track criminals. But way easier to investigate those cases because suddenly you have a real-time system where you can find global footprints of money flowing around supporting the cybercrime. And that's kind of the conclusion that Sarah came to, too. It's, it's a little hard in retrospect to imagine thinking like, oh, wow, that's how I'm going to hide all my criminal activity, you know, again, in this like immutable ledger. Sarah eventually graduated from UCSD with a PhD in computer science, and she's back to researching cryptography and security, though now she's at University College London. And to this day, she's still amazed that her decision to buy a Boston CD and a Guy Fox mask with a pocket full of Bitcoin could turn into something so big. And did you ever think that what you were doing was going to give rise to an entire industry? Because it has, right? Uh, it has, yeah. Um, I, why didn't I think so? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. And I kind of thought of it as a 
small academic experiment. I mean, it was basically a, a very manual process. And so I was just like, oh, come on, like, who's going to do that at any kind of real scale? This is Cook Here. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence headlines. Officials appear to have ruled out that the recent leak of classified documents providing details about the war in Ukraine was the result of a hack. The material has been appearing on platforms like Discord, Twitter, 4chan, and the Telegram messaging app, but all the documents look to be photographs of a printed briefing. In some cases, the documents looked like they were sitting on top of a hunting magazine. Former officials tell Click here that the papers appear to be from a classified briefing, and it looks like they were folded up, put in a pocket, and taken out of a secure area to be photographed. Some of the documents were specifically marked for U.S. eyes only, which increases the likelihood that an American official was behind the leak. The head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, predicted that AI tools are going to dominate this century because of all the ways cyber criminals and nation states will be able to harness their power. Europol has already warned that chatbots like ChatGPT will likely be deployed to sharpen up phishing emails and to spread disinformation and even write malware. Easterly told an audience at the Atlantic Council that the world seems destined to repeat the original sin of the internet. Generative AI hasn't been built with security in mind, and because of that, it may force the world to create a multi-billion dollar AI security industry to bolt on top of the technology, which, she said, is an ideal. The Taiwan hardware manufacturer, MicroStar International, confirmed last week that a new ransomware group had successfully targeted the company. In a statement, MSI didn't specify exactly when the attack occurred, but said the incident was reported to law enforcement and recovery measures have started. The Money Message Ransomware Group added the company to its list of victims last week, saying it had stolen, among other things, source code, firmware, and frameworks. Cybersecurity research officials say the group is new. MSI is based in New Taipei City, and it had some $6.6 billion in revenue in 2021. It designs and develops everything from laptops to motherboards and graphic cards. And finally, police in Camden City, New Jersey, confirmed that they've been hit with a ransomware attack. A spokesperson for the department, which serves more than half a million residents, told Recorded Future News that the ransomware attack took place on March 13th. Camden County is on the border with Philadelphia. The hack didn't affect public safety response, a police spokesperson said, adding that news reports that said the attack locked criminal investigative files and internal administration functions are accurate. The department said that its lawyers were limiting the amount of detail they could get into. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. I'm the executive producer and host of Click Here. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Sarah Wyman is our writer-reporter. The show was mastered by Gabriella Glick. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. And our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. We'd love to hear from you. 
Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. Check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. And one other thing, Andy Greenberg's new book, Tracers in the Dark, takes a deep dive into this whole idea of cryptocurrency tracing. And next week, we'll have a special episode, a conversation on stage with Andy and two of the book's main characters, Michael Groninger and a former IRS investigator, Tigran Gambarian, who not only worked together on the Mt. Gox investigation, but a number of other investigations as well. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.